Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Today's episode is brought to you by Tyrant Books, publisher of the novel Vincent and Alice and Alice by Shane Jones, the visionary author of Lightboxes. Vincent and Alice and Alice is a mind-bending office comedy and a touching modern love story set against the backdrop of an ever-increasingly disorienting America. Vincent and Alice and Alice by Shane Jones, out there now from Tyrant Books. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. Hello, hey, how's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. It is August, dog days of summer. We're in the thick of it. The ice caps are melting. Have you seen this news about Greenland? This uh, huge, uh, like, a uh, terrifying melting that's happening up there? Like, billions of gallons of water in a day? I don't know. Or billions of gallons of ice melted? You know what I'm saying. Is it gallons of ice? You know what I mean. It's hot. Sarah Rose Etter is my guest. Her debut novel is called The Book of X. It's available from $2 Radio. Perhaps you have heard of it. It has been generating a lot of buzz. People are talking about The Book of X by Sarah Rose Etter. And I was lucky enough to get her to come talk to me when she was on tour and stopped over in Los Angeles. So great conversation with her. That's coming up here in a second. I got a letter from a listener named Luke who says, Hey, Brad, I'm intrigued by your offhand mention of selling a TV show. Have we listeners ever gotten a full account of your, quote, Hollywood period? Why are you holding out on us? Please dish. Your fan, Luke. 
I mean, it's a little bit of an overstatement to say that I ever had a Hollywood period, though I guess I kind of did. And my success in Hollywood is of the very middling variety. It's nothing to write home about. But, like, with that in mind, I do feel uh, a sense of pride in having gotten through those hoops and sold a thing, just because it's such a pain in the ass, at least through my lens. To some people, it might be no big deal. But for me, taking all those meetings and uh, having to do that dog and pony show and dealing with all of the insincerity and weirdness of Hollywood, just it was really stressful. But at times exciting. Like it's it's kind of fun to be on a on a like the lot of a movie studio. There's a little bit of that. You get some excitement from that, which I would not deny. And it was fun to actually convert and get the yes and like, you know, oh my god, these people like our show. They're gonna buy the show. Maybe this show's gonna be on TV. But then there was like an executive shuffling. Like it was like a, I thought it was gonna happen and then there, you know. There was an executive shuffling at MTV and everything went kaput, which happens. But it was no great success. I'm no great uh, like Hollywood insider or anything like that. But I did sell a TV show. I did make those rounds. I have had that experience. I've been on the water bottle tour. You just go to these meetings and it's like, do you want a bottle of water? And I'm always like, yeah, I'm taking the bottle of water every time, even if I'm not thirsty. I'm getting out of here with some water. sparkling water really like flavored sparkling water i'll take that sometimes they have that too you know they have uh, different offerings you always i think it's important to take whatever they offer but i you know i've talked about this in bits and pieces i think maybe the most extensive conversations i might have had around this were with melissa broder who uh, was my writing partner on the show so like i think episode 404 might be the one where we talk about it the most or uh, episode 519. Melissa Broder, of course, is the uh, mastermind behind the So Sad Today Twitter feed. She's the author of the Pisces, the uh, essay collection So Sad Today. She's got another book coming out. So uh, we worked together and made those rounds. (laughs) And I mean, it was like, I have fond memories in some ways. I love Melissa. We had some fun despite the shit show of trying to go through that process. And we, we did, we got there. It's not, you know, at at the point at which, uh, they decided not to do it, it was out of our hands, but they paid us. And, uh, I guess we got close. I don't even know what that means. And I think, you know, in retrospect, like I really wanted to sell the show and get it made because I need money, but I don't even watch TV. Like I don't watch reality TV. I've seen like five or 10 episodes of the Simpsons, five or 10 episodes of the Seinfeld, like all these shows that are cultural touchstones. I might've seen, uh, and I might've actually sat through an episode of South Park twice. Not that these shows are the end all be all. I mean, I do watch Homeland. I watched all of game of Thrones. Like there are some shows that, uh, you know, get their hooks into me for whatever reason, but I'm far from like the dude who knows every TV show and knows every movie and every line from every movie this, despite the fact that I have a film degree, I think what I'm coming to grips with is that just temperamentally and constitutionally as a person, and this applies to literature, it applies to music, it applies to art, food, any, <laughs> any enjoyable aspect of life. I'm just not capable 
of like obsessive enthusiasm to the degree that some people seem to be. And in particular, the kinds of people who tend to have the, uh, will to work through all of this, uh, nightmarish bullshit. You know, it's the person who just burns to be a Hollywood success story and to like win an award and give that speech and, you know, do the premieres. I don't care about that as, you know, yeah, it would be nice, but like, I don't care enough to, I don't really care. And that's the, I think that's to my detriment. I think that was like, uh, that's why I didn't continue. I sort of realized that and was like, you know what? I should leave this to people who really are into it. But there you go. I do like the idea of making a show that makes people laugh. That was always the the point, you know? I think that's a noble way to make a living, trying to make people laugh in this uh, troubled world of ours. So I don't look down my nose at people who do that and do it well and are decent people. There are lots of decent people working in Hollywood. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush or oversimplify, but I don't know, man. It's well documented what a what a crazy business it is by people inside and out. I mean, it's not, I don't think there's much uh, argument. So I hope that explains it, Luke. I hope that gives you some further insight. Um, I don't regret it. It was a good experience. Glad I did it. Got it out of my system. A lot of people don't get that far. You know, we had agents, we had managers, we did all that stuff. It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> well, at least for us, like, I guess maybe it's not a pain in the ass if like you're the child of a celebrity or something, or you went to one of these private high schools in Los Angeles and like your friend's dad like runs Sony or something. But for the average person, like showing up and like trying to figure it out cold, it can be, uh, you know, quite a knot to untangle. And in large part, we untangled it. So appreciate you listening, Luke. Thanks for the letter. I hope that helps. If you want further information and possibly contradictions of what I just said, you can listen to those uh, archived episodes with me and Melissa Broder. Maybe I had a different attitude when I talked to her. I don't think I did, but always possible. I contain multitudes. Who knows what I said? Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book, but failing, if you're failing to write a book, but wishing you could, if you've written a book, but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. 
My guest today is Sarah Rose Etter. Her debut novel is called The Book of X. It is available from $2 Radio. And I had such a nice time with her. I'm excited to share this conversation. Here you go, folks. This is Sarah Rose Etter. I never thought of it as a grotesque until Carmen called it that in her blurb. And then I went crazy and was just researching the entire history of the grotesque. And I realized I do have a lineage there, that this is 100%. Um, in that line. But I never set out to do that. I just set out to write this one story. Isn't it nice when somebody tells you what you've done? It's like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> Thank yes, you. I Thank did. Thank you for letting me know. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, I always try to own up to it though. I'm like, I'm, I didn't know that's what I had done. This podcast is a grotesque. Is actually. it really? No. I don't oh, know. it might be. You should check it out. It could be. Uh, <laughs> it could it's, be. If you think about the definition of the grotesque, in most cases, in the early days, they were literally talking about it as bringing the dark into the light. So this podcast could potentially, if you think about going into the dark minds of writers, be a grotesque. <laughs> or they're just like unearthing my own dark mind somehow. Yeah. Or everyone's dark minds. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is a grotesque. Then. <laughs> it truly is. So let's, okay. So let's get into, <laughs> I, I think picking up bits and pieces, reading some interviews you did, this book's uh, birth story to me is compelling. Um, why don't you start at the beginning? First of all, Give us like the 30,000 foot view. How long did it take to write? Yeah, I think we'd say about five years, six years. And I only noticed that because I was looking for something in my Google Drive and I realized that I had a spreadsheet I had made uh, about six years ago. And that was really just trying to think about how to link a bunch of different pieces together. And so I had started mapping stories against each other to see how they might fit. What does Uh, that mean? uh, You know, I I was working with computer systems. I had a really nerdy tech job and I was mapping the front ends of computer systems to the back end. And I started to think about a character who would have sort of a front end and a back end, a day-to-day life, and then it would be juxtaposed with this other life that was in her head. Uh, And so that was where the visions really came from and started. Um, And so the work of that, it took a lot of organization. It's funny because it reads surreal, but it was very much a lot of structure before I ever started to write. You know, I was really outlining each part and trying to take this commercial structure and force surrealism into it, if that makes sense. So you use a spreadsheet, just so I can get a visual of this, for this book. Yeah. To map out each of the individual chapters, bits. Yeah, that's how it started. And then I I used a program called Scrivener. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's usually used, I think, for script writing. But I knew that I wanted to have a bunch of pieces, and I didn't know how to manage them all, right? Because when you start to get to scale... 300 pages and you start moving things around and editing, um, there are so many bits and pieces that, you know, to organize it and streamline it. Um, Scrivener was a huge help. Okay. So how did you, cause I have Scrivener. Yeah. I've tried to use it and I get like really excited about it. I'm like, Oh yeah. And like, then I sort of fall off. I'm like, Oh, I feel like there's too much to keep track of here. Yeah. How I, are you doing it? Is it like each, each individual bit has its own page? And they're all down that left side margin. Yeah, so I had broken it up into three parts, and I mapped out every scene I wanted in each part, and I wrote them each on a note card. And every morning, I was in Iceland for a writing residency at the time, and every morning I would pull a card and write the scene. Um, And Scrivener was awesome for that because I just had so many pieces. Uh, But when we initially laid the book out, $2 Radio came back and was like, this is a thousand pages long. You know, these pieces can't be on individual pages. You know, and I was like, I guess you're right. I didn't write War and Peace. Like, we we don't need to publish this as a giant tome. Um, So then we came up with the format that you see today, which is, you know, I think I like it because it kind of lends itself to 
you know, the Twitter era, really. I mean, if you think about social media, our attention spans are so short. So you're hoping to hold on to people for as long as you can. I've been in kind of a fatalist mood lately with regard to writing and reading. Um, not, not as much reading, but just like book world, like just because I'm frustrated with my own book, which is just torturing me and I don't have time because I'm working so hard. Right. So I'm just kind of like in a mood. And I was like, the other day, I was like, you know what? I like reading Twitter. Twitter's my favorite. Like I started getting like this reverse psychology thing going and then I caught myself and I'm like, what am I doing? I need to yeah. go on a vision quest. Yeah. Well, you, you actually bring up a good point that I've been thinking about a lot. It's like what was handed down to us from kind of academic writing is that you should put your ass in the chair and write a page every day. And when you look at where we are with capitalism now, I'm starting to ask the question, how is that possible? Because if you're not working 90 hours a week, then you have five jobs and you're driving Lyft or you're, you, you know what I mean? We're in a gig economy. And so I'm really starting to question because I never would have written this book if I didn't take off a month and go sit with it for 30 days. It never would have happened. Okay. So wait, we got to stop because I want to try to do this as chronologically as possible. <laughs> the very, very, very beginning. How does this book oh. begin for you? Yeah. So the spreadsheet and then I got the first line in my head, which is I was born and not like my mother and her mother before her. And that really just kicked around in my head for a long time. A knot meaning like tied in like a knot. Like tied in a knot, yeah. And I think now looking back on it, there are these sculptures Louise Bourgeois has done of these knotted women um, that are very beautiful and I was really taken with. And I think subconsciously she might have been really influencing me. Um, but then I applied for a bunch of writing residencies um, with the first pages of the project. And I kept getting waitlisted in America. I got, and they were kind, they were nice. Uh, but because I have a full-time job, I couldn't really sit around and wait for a phone call and disrupt my life for a month. So when the offer came in from Iceland, I just said, you know, fuck it. Like this, I, this is what I want to do. And my parents, my friends, everyone was like, you don't need to go to Iceland to write a book. You can do it here on nights and weekends. This isn't necessary. Wait, wait, wait. So what was the offer from Iceland? Uh, just that I would live in a cabin with some other artists um, and it, they have a residency program over there. So there's visual artists and then there's writers too. This is like that movie Midsummer. <laughs> you know, someone brought that up the other day and they were like, is that what Iceland was like? I was like, you know, we didn't really run around, you know. <laughs> I, um, haven't, I haven't even seen it. I watched the trailer and I was like, I, wa I want to see it, but I haven't seen it. I actually liked it, but then, you know, it is a little, you know, it's a little whitewashed for little, sure. It's a little much. It's a little white. <laughs> is it? You know, yeah. It's yeah. Like, um, but, you know, then I, the, I think the week before I left for Iceland, the residency emailed me and everyone dropped out and it was just going to be me in this cabin for 30 days. And that's, that's actually better. Well, I, you know, you think that, but at first I was like, I'm going to get murdered. This is so weird. Um, and also I thought I might go crazy because you're, I'm pulled out of the American news cycle. I'm pulled out of everything. Sounds good. It kind of was. And you know, what a luxury, right? Like what a privilege to be able to just say, like, I'm not going to be able to see CNN. I'm not going to be able to be on Twitter at the same hours of the day as everybody else. Um, so I think it's actually funny because the book is distant from America, but it still feels American. It's still dealing with like issues of capitalism and things like this. But chronologically, um, I went to Iceland and the sun was going down for about five hours a day. So I feel like I was there for much longer than 30 days. Where in Iceland are you? Uh, I can't even pronounce the name of the town. It's it, just like a, a million consonants. Yeah, yeah, it was right on the edge of the Icelandic National Park. So I was really out. There were probably only like 50 people in the town, maybe. What did it look like? Uh, beautiful. You know, there was a lake, there was a mountain. Um, you know, every night I would go. Uh, eventually, the 
like locals got to know who I was and you know at the at night they would let me come to the hot spring for free which was really sweet so um, I would wake up really early and just go straight to write and then I'd hike and it did it felt every day felt like two days which was kind of uh. very lucky yeah yeah and I you know I think um, I've always had a full-time job I've always been a working writer and I think this was the first time I could apply my work ethic to writing and just get up and force myself to do it every day. So how did you, did you have to quit your job? Did you get some time off? I, you know, I used my income tax check and I saved up a lot of money. And then, you know, I was, I decided to quit one job and that, you know, I had some severance and some vacation they had to pay out. Um, and then I started a new job when I got back. So it really was, and, and it's similar to book tour, you know, I just quit my job now. I'm going to get another job that I start in a couple weeks. Um, you know, you kind of find these gaps and holes to make it happen. So it wasn't like you went to your boss and were like, listen, <laughs> I need to go to Iceland. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because, you know, it's hard for me because I think when I hear how it sounds, I kind of feel like it sounds so douchey. Like, oh, you went to Iceland and wrote a book. Like, I think it sounds great. You know, like, you know I don't know. It, but I will say this, like being by myself for that long and only being able to deal with the work and the landscape all of that was, you know, really important to this. And I think it like showed me that I could write because I, th I think in my head, I have a vision of a writer who is a little more disciplined than me and is constantly writing at all times. And I don't really know if that's the case. Were you on the internet or your phone at all? Barely. I mean, very lightly. Very. You know, I, keep, I kept in touch with a couple people, but did you read? Yes. I, you know, I was so funny. I packed one suitcase of clothes and the other suitcase was nothing but books and like protein bars and coffee because Iceland is super, super expensive. So someone told me like, bring as much food as you can. And I was really getting, I got to a point where I was just eating like, you know, a piece of bread and an egg every day and, you know, cooking some chicken because you're on an Island. So the food is just so, so expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I came home in great shape. <laughs> right. This is all sounding wonderful to me. It's yeah. like, it's like, uh, you know, you're basically going on, uh, like a deep retreat Yeah, and you didn't have really that much interaction with other people. A little bit. I mean, I did go into the city a couple of times. I made some friends. I was really excited because I don't really, I'm not much for theater, but I went to see like Icelandic theater in the first week that I was there. And it was crazy. I think Bjork's ex-husband did this crazy play and it was like nothing I had ever like seen. Like an Icelandic ex-husband? Yeah. It was bananas. The first part was, you know, physical dance. The second part was a play. And then the third part was a movie and it was six hours long or something. And it was just like, I, it was the craziest shit I've ever seen in my life and no one was Instagramming it and there were kids in the audience. And so I really started to be kind of excited by this idea of just letting myself do whatever I wanted. And I, I actually feel like seeing that was, you know, proof that it was okay. That's actually really good to hear. Yeah. And probably, I mean, even better to actually like lay eyes on. Yeah. I mean, the opening act was a woman who was writhing in a pile of black rubber tubes and trying to claw her way out of it while other dancers used rubber to keep pulling her in. It was dark and strange and visceral, and I had never seen anything like it. It didn't feel like anything that would get made in America. I, yeah, I don't think it would get made. <laughs> maybe some sort of fringe theater at like Burning Man. Yeah, or right. Yeah. But, um, so that was actually pretty formative. And I did, you know, I learned a lot about Iceland and kind of what's been going on over there. It's a fascinating place, but more so, I think, for the nature. It's just, it's good to travel. Mm -hmm. It's good to get out of the United States of yeah. America or wherever you live. It's but. An, we're, we're a noisy country. You know, it felt really good to not have to have a hot take and not have to have an opinion on something. But also, again, you know, there are so many people who don't get to step out of it. Right. You know.
So that was the first time you really put words to page. Yeah, I mean, I had pieces of it written um, that I brought with me. There were there were certain sections like man store, or you know, there were different things that I had already written that I knew I wanted to incorporate. But the bulk of the narrative, I think, I wrote seventy thousand words in those thirty days. Jesus. Yeah, and then now, I mean, now the book is much shorter than that. I mean, I think it wouldn't even be. Most publishers would think it's not even a novel. I think it's like forty five thousand words now. Um, but when I came home, it was a mess. I mean, it was a mess of a draft. But that gave me a little bit more hope about doing the next book because now I understand, like, you've got to make this messy thing and then clean it up. Um, so then I think I probably edited for, like, three or four years. Okay, so then what did an average, if you did 70,000 <laughs> words in 30 days, which is outrageous, <laughs> what did an average work session look like in terms of length? I mean, you must not have been doing any editing in the moment. You were just going. Yeah, I just went. And I think I was doing, I was clocking between like one and 5,000 words a day, I think at that point. And you had a very, a relatively detailed outline that you were working from. Sort of. Yeah, I would say so. But I mean, the, like the meat quarry, everyone's like, where did that come from? I'm like, you know, honestly, I don't know. I, I, uh, I was reading a book by Robert Olin Butler while I was there, and he was recommending that the minute you get out of bed, you go straight to write. You don't get coffee. You don't brush your teeth. You don't do anything. So I was just sort of every morning very haggard at a keyboard, and I think having my defenses down just let me make things that I, I think at another place, another time, I never would have let myself just make something so weird. Well, and also like you're, I think I've heard the same argument and it's not unconvincing, but you're also closest to dream state. Yeah. You know, you go from like REM sleep, you know, whatever you're in at late stage of the sleep process and you climb out of bed and you go to the keyboard and you know, you, maybe you carry some of that with you. Yeah. I mean, I think too, for the me quarry, it's like, I really wanted to talk about capitalism and how people make money in a rural area, juxtaposed with the city, which is what comes in in the second part of the book, without giving it a place and a time, right? If if she's born and not, that means none of the rules of a regular world apply. That means she anything can happen. That's a new world. And so I didn't want her dad and her brother to be like farmers or bankers or something that I would have to explain. You know what I mean? I wanted them to live in this kind of nebulous, timeless place. And, you know, you really have to find a lot of ways to not talk about smartphones or technology. Um, you have to find a way to remove all these markers in order for the audience to suspend, you know, their disbelief long enough to go along with you. I mean, I think a lot about the movie The Lobster. You couldn't tell what year that was made in, right? There's a hotel and there's a forest and a diner. But that's it. And so, like, you could never say, oh, that was set in the 40s. That was set in, you know, or in the future. You don't you don't know. How are they? I mean, I, this is Colin Farrell. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I've, like, I meant to watch it, but I haven't. It's like, how do they dress? I'm curious. Well, I mean, they're all mostly in suits or, like, very plain clothes. Okay, yeah. Because yeah. that would have to be the only visual marker I yeah. could think of that you would... Yeah, I've been really interested in, in works of art that manage to be without time or place. I think that they're the most fascinating uh, but they're not easy to make. That's for damn sure. And so for listeners who haven't read yet, um, you talk about the knot. Can you explain what that, what that means? With yeah. Cassie? Um, so the main character is born with her stomach tied in the shape of a knot. And it's sort of this um, deformity in her body that she has to live with. And, you know, her mother has a knot and her grandmother too. And that was really important to me because I wanted to get at the idea of like what we inherit and being like something being passed down to you that you have no control over. And so I think for her as a character, she's kind of born into this world very other. 
and I don't talk about this too much because I think it takes away some of the magic, but I think a lot about movies when I was a kid that inspired me and I was thinking about when I saw E.T. and Edward Scissorhands and Harry and the Hendersons. These are all movies where someone different tried to become this, you know, part of society and they never can stay, right? They can never stay in these worlds. They're too different. They're they're born other. Um, and so her story, I think, you know, was really important to me to kind of hold true to the idea that she was never really going to fit in. Um, but she struggles with her body and getting a job and being judged on how she looks and trying to date and, and, you know, go grocery shopping and things like that. And alongside that, you know, she struggles with the pain of her body and surgery and all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, she's a character that is definitely sad. You know, I, I think she is a tragic character. Um, so, the Northern Lights. Ah, <laughs> you're in Iceland. I gotta, t- I gotta have you talk about this. <laughs> this is like right up my alley. You're alone. You're in this incredible uh, writing binge, you know, where you're getting seventy thousand words in thirty days. But at some point, you saw the Aurora Borealis. Yeah. So I woke up one night at like one a.m. and. I really, I wasn't doing this every night. I just, but I did it this night. Um, I was at the tail end of Northern Light Seasons. It was very spotty if you'll ever get to see them. Um, and I went into the national park and I didn't, no one tells you before that the Northern Lights come that all oh, the sky does a lot of weird things. And so I looked up and it really looked like the stars had started moving like in a river. And then the sky just kind of, you know, cracked open and the Northern Lights came out and it was probably for like five or seven minutes. And I was just, I don't know, I was just sobbing. I couldn't believe how beautiful it was. And I was by myself and I had thought, you know, after, you know, thinking about life and death, I've always been kind of uh, not obsessed with death, but it's always just kind of lingering there, you know? Sure, yeah. Um, and this was the first time when I saw the Northern Lights that I thought maybe death would be something kind of beautiful and would be bright and gorgeous and not this tragedy um, and full of pain. Uh, and so that really became kind of Cassie's ending to me, this idea of like transcendence, of of leaving behind the body that caused you so much pain to go somewhere bright. And to me, the, the ending of the book, not to be a spoiler, but, you know, I, I do find beauty in that. I You know, it is a tragedy and a grotesque, but I do think in the end, you know, she does transcend. Yeah. And so you woke up at one, just so I can paint, yeah. <laughs> paint a picture. You woke up at 1 a.m., like walked out into the national park at 1 a.m.? Yeah. So, I mean, there were like some reports that there might be spottings of the Northern Lights, but I had been trying to see them almost the whole time I was there and I without any effect. And so I think this was maybe my last ditch effort that like maybe I would get to see them. Um, but I mean, it's it's really hard. It's so funny. I think the New Yorker just did a piece on the, the tourism of trying to see the Northern Lights and how they're getting like busfuls of people and, you know, they're paying a lot of money to be taken to see them, but, you know, you can't pay money to have access to a natural wonder that occurs at random. Fantastic. You know what I mean? And so yeah. it's kind of funny to see, now that I'm reading about it, I'm realizing how special it was that I was alone because apparently now it's like all these tourist attractions and companies um, trying to make tourists feel comfortable about giving them money to be taken to maybe see something. Yeah. That's a good business. You can't, you know, it turns out you can't buy can't the stars. Buy the, you can't buy the, uh, <laughs> I saw it once when I was a kid. Did you? In Indiana. Whoa, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was amazing. Yeah. It was super amazing to see. Did yours last long? No. I mean, I just, and then we were in high school, so we were like, whoa, you know, we didn't fully appreciate, <laughs> but I did see it. I mean, the sky was definitely doing unusual things and there were greens. And, yeah. 
you know, um, but your story's better. Uh, you know, it's brilliant. It was beautiful. I feel lucky for it. Um, but again, it's like, it gave you the ending of your book. Yeah, it's true. Came from the heavens. It's true. The heavens, the heavens did look down on me. Was this at the end or towards the end? Yeah, it was towards the end. I think Uh, I was, I think I had like maybe a couple days left. They should make a a movie about (laughs) you going to Iceland. Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, uh, Iceland's a, a funky place, man. I like them. I I want to go. I fuck with Iceland. It's good. I think I would go back. Also, the crazy part about it is it's the youngest earth on the planet. So imagine if you went to like Yosemite before anyone knew what it was, you know, and there's not any infrastructure. So there's just like next to every giant waterfall, there's like a tiny little rope with like a little sign that's like, don't go in there. You know what I mean? And it's like in America, you would be having like lawsuits left and right. Right. But here it's like, you know, just... Please don't jump in this geyser. I remember, yeah, I went skiing overseas. Not that I do this very often, but like, you know, years ago, I went skiing overseas and I I was comparing it because I went to college in Colorado. Mm -hmm. Colorado, you go skiing, there's like boundaries and don't go here and forbidden. And there it's sort of like ski at your own risk. Good luck, dude. Good luck. (laughs) You might die. Yeah. And if if you do, it's on you. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, Iceland was super fascinating and mostly just because... Everywhere you go, you'd say a different landscape and different things are happening. Like within one day, it would be a hailstorm and then a rainbow. And then, you know, I'd go to a black beach where there were silver fish bodies all over the place. And, you know, there were parts of it that just didn't look like this planet, you know, for sure. It was definitely otherworldly. Yeah. And like an untouchedness, I I would guess. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, I didn't even explore. I mean, I think I've probably... I. I've heard that you could spend, you know, a year there and still not see all of it. Because when you think about the fjords and the highlands, I've really only saw probably like a fourth or a fifth of that whole island, which is cool. And you got back with this 70,000 word draft. Yeah. And it was a mess, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, because you had to, you know, obviously you write that fast. It's not going to be pretty. Mo- it's not going to be pretty, most likely. But it was also um, very dark. Yeah, it was, um, I would say probably very, very hopeless. And I think only through like the editing process did it become lighter for sure. So, but like I, I took heart in this cause I've <laughs> written a draft of uh, many drafts of a book where I'm just like, ew, yeah. like what the fuck is wrong with me? Yeah, like, there's yeah. nothing redeeming about this. Totally. It's just misery. Yeah. And uh, you don't want to share that with people. And that's the right instinct, I think. Nobody wants to read that. You know, it's, I, I, I've really been struggling with this book because how do I stand beside something that is so gross and disgusting and magical and beautiful at the same time? It's hard. It's hard. It's easier. It would be easier if this was a third-person narrative where a character I invented goes through some things, right? This feels much closer to me, so it's it's much harder to handle it, I think, in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you also, like, it's not just like, an indictment of the art, but it's also personal. You're like, what's wrong with me? Yeah, but absolutely. Like, this is what comes out of me. Yeah. Like, I, I need to get my shit together. I really, I frequently call this book my tumor while I was working on it, you know, because it is bits and pieces. I mean, I'm in there. I just, you know, I wouldn't tell you exactly where. I mean, I could tell you where, but... You Come know, on, tell me where. <laughs> um, I had a spine surgery after Tongue Party came out, which was the chapbook that came out when I was in graduate school, or it was my graduate school thesis. Um, and I had written another collection that I was sending around. And then one day I woke up and I couldn't really walk anymore. 
and I had to move back in with my parents and the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And this went on for like seven months. I went to about 37 doctors. No walking? No. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was walking, uh, but I couldn't go to work anymore. I couldn't drive. Um, and later on I found out that they couldn't believe I could still walk, which is kind of crazy. Uh, but I think, you know, a lot of that is in her surgeries. Um, and after I had the back surgery, eventually, what was wrong? Um, I turned out that I had the worst herniated disc they had seen in 35 years. And it was on all the nerve endings at the base of my spine, including my sciatic nerve. And I had started to lose control of my lower body. Um, and so I think that's in her story for sure to like all the doctors she goes to the sugar water doctor, all of that. Um, and so I think that's another reason that makes this book so hard is it's, it's very personal and it feels, you know, um, it's hard to put that out there. You know, it's easier to hide. It would be easier to hide. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, at least it's fiction. You got a little bit, you got a little <laughs> bit of cover, right? Some cover. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I came home with this messy draft and it was very dark and it made me really think about what do I want to put into the world and also how can I be nicer to the reader because it's, it becomes less about the darkness and more about how do I make sure that I'm not overwhelming someone so much right. that they don't want to read it. Right. But, you know, and so I think in the, in the revision process, that's where I started to weave in, you know, more visions, more of the facts, just to give it some breathing room. A couple puppies. You know, yeah. And because <laughs> I make her fall in love, give her a friend, because fuck, it's like, if you would have read the first narrative all the way through, you would have been like, okay, thank you for this. Like, I guess I'll just walk into the sea. Right. Thanks. Um, but I, you know, but the other thing I do stand by is that is what life is, right? Life is beautiful and then it's tragic and then it's beautiful and then it's tragic again. Right. And then it's funny. And th yeah, and then it's sad. Yeah. And then it's disgusting. Right. Uh, you know, and so I, I do think we're in a moment for the American novel. If you think about the eighties with Reagan, it was these very sentimental American novels, these heroes journeys where, you know, and there's some really cool research being done into, you know, the emotional contours of America. There's a book out now called the hundred. Uh, by a researcher out of, you know, I think it's published by Duke. And she's been doing a lot of looking at kind of what we're making during cultural moments. And when you look at Reagan, it's like we had all this hope about America, that things could get better um, in some cases. I mean, obviously, we had the Brat Pack still operating and there were, you know, dissenting little pockets. Um, but for the large part, what you saw in the books are, you know, people getting better, redemption, you know, and so I think what we're seeing now, if you look at like Ocean Vuong, if you look at a lot of the work that's coming out, Hunger by Roxanne Gay, um, I think we're seeing a lot of books where things don't get better and where we're just being honest about the fact that sometimes we don't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and things, you know, get a happy ending. Um, and I, I do think that's very, you know, in relation to the time, you know, because it's hard to even have this conversation while all these terrible things are happening in America at all times. And people that I really care about are losing rights. And, you know, it feels it feels very strange to be on a kind of book tour while all that's happening. Or to like write some sort of Horatio Alger story where it's like, hey, guys, just buck up. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, how disingenuous is that? And it's so it's like, you know, I don't I don't I don't think I believe that a novel should be offering false hope. And my dad, my dad is, you know, grew up, he was really into Reagan. And so it's very funny that this is the truth, but he keeps telling me like, please just write a nice book for fuck's sake, you know, just write something nice. Um, <laughs> Sounds like my parents, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm kind of sitting here going, what the fuck is nice right now? I would love for you to tell me what's nice, right? Because it feels pretty bad. Yeah. 
you know? It feels objectively bad. Yeah. It feels like the world's crumbling around us. Um, and so uh, I, I don't know what does the reader want. If you want to escape, then this is maybe not your book, you know? I think, yeah, we're in some sort of spiritual crisis. We all need to see the Northern Lights. It's all we need. <laughs> Go to Iceland. Yeah, but you know, here's the thing. It's so hard to say that because it's like, who could afford to do that, right? I got lucky and I saved up and I could go, but Jeff Bezos could underwrite <laughs> all of us. Oh, Bezos. Yeah. He could take all of us there. Actually. It wouldn't even cost him much. No, I was like, somebody's t- there's some Twitter feed where it's like things Jeff Bezos could do with his money. Basically. Or it's like every day. I want to say every day or regularly. They're like today, Jeff Bezos did not end world hunger, <sighs> which is like, you know, insinuating that he, he actually objectively could. Yeah. If he just cut a check. Maybe that's pipe. maybe it's true. I don't know. I don't know either. I'm not sure. Um, so you added a friend. You added a love story. You just added some some light. That's yeah. the, that's the answer. So for people out there <laughs> who might be working on a manuscript and might have, you know, one of these like seventy thousand word page piles that's just, um, you know, just like basically like a uh, a misery bomb. Add some light. Add some light. But, you know, I don't know. It's, it feels very American, too, that we we need these nice books because I look at most of the books I love that are in translation, and it's like Camus wasn't walking around adding light. <laughs> you know what I mean? Most of the great writers that I love were not but in the any stranger, way. The, the, the beach scene in The Stranger, I'm like, well, I kind of want to go there. It seems a beautiful. little. I want to go swim in the sea with this psychopath. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I do. I do. I, that's why I get so excited about reading, you know, like Samantha Schweblin, uh, Fever Dream. I love her work because, you know, there isn't really a lot of light there either. Um, you know, most Jenny Erpenbeck, another one you know, not a ton of light in those books, but they're still beautiful. Some people can do it. I like the thing that you said earlier about how life is funny, then sad, sometimes sad and funny at the same time. It's dark and then it's light. That to me feels more honest. Yeah. I mean, there are episodes in life that are just pure darkness. And if you want to try to render that, go for it. But man, I don't know if I can do that. I feel like we, we got so like, we got so much darkness to like in real life. Mm hmm. That's something I struggle with just personally, like no judgment on anybody else's work, but don't, don't you ever think to yourself, like, I'm going to put this thing out in the world and it's going to just make people feel darker about, you know, than they already do. Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially with this book, I'm like, what kind of hopelessness am I forwarding? But at the same time, I, if we ask what the job of art is, and I think this book wants to almost be sculptural. It doesn't. It almost doesn't want to be a novel. It wants to be a sculpture. What's the job of a great work of art? Is it to make us feel better or to make us ask questions? It's to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. <laughs> okay, well, now that we solved that. That's done. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. Next topic. <laughs> um, but no, it's true because when I think about the art that I love the most... It's not really resolving things for me. It's making me ask questions and look at things differently, but it's never saying, here's the answer. Good luck. No one has the answer. Right. What, what if, if we had the answer, then, you know, we would have resolved a lot of things already. But like, even like in, let's just continue the sculpture metaphor. Let's say there's this really like, you know, magnificent, ornate, multifaceted sculpture. There would be shades of light. And even if it's like a, the totality of it is menacing, there could be like a little winged angel over here. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's like a, it's like little, um, gradations. Yeah. And I think one thing that's been 
interesting about this book is I think you could look at it from many angles and facets. And so when I do interviews and talk about it, it's like, do you want to talk about surrealism? Do you want to talk about feminism? Do you want to talk about capitalism? Because death, life, love, sex, drinking, all of it's in there. Right. Uh, bombs, wars, right? So um, I don't think I don't think it's an easy one, you know? So five years, you had a 70,000 word month in Iceland and then five years later it comes out. Yeah. So I edited it a lot and I sent it out to five agents, which in retrospect, you know, I was being a big baby because the agents were like, this is beautiful, but we don't know what to do with it. We can't sell it. It's glistening. It's glittering, but we don't know where to put it on a shelf. We love your voice. Yeah, exactly. All those things that they say to you. Um, and then, How did you respond to that? Oh, what, I cried like a baby, and then I, you know, gave up, uh, and I moved to San Francisco. Oh, awesome! Uh, <laughs> Fantastic. I was like, "Fuck it, I'm not going to be a writer." And I took a job in tech, and I started working in Silicon Valley. And I think about three months into that, two dollar radio, I almost had forgotten I had submitted it to them, uh, and then they took it. And I remember being on the train home from work, and I got the email that they were accepting it, and I was you know, the train's moving and I like want to scream. I want to cry. I just am like pacing because I can't believe it's actually going to happen. Uh, so I had a, a couple minutes where it felt really, really good. And then immediately <laughs> <laughs> two, about two, yeah, about three minutes. It felt great good for you. Um, and then, <laughs> thank you. Uh, and then immediately I really went insane on editing. And I think even they, and Blake Butler had read the very first draft, I think, or one of the first drafts. Uh, and then, you know, when he sees it now, he's always like, this is a completely different book because something happened when I knew they were going to publish it where like all the jets turned on. I like dumped the people I was dating. I was, I just stopped doing anything but this book. And if you look at the stack of edits from, you know, they accepted the book in September and initially they wanted it to come out in March, which is why I was a complete, I went just completely psychotic. Um, it's like, oh, this is, this thing's going to be seen in public. <laughs> yeah. And I had also been reading another book that they put out called the deeper, the water, the uglier, the fish uh -huh. that I thought was so beautiful. Yeah. And I, I almost, talked to Katya in here. I, I love her. I just saw her the other day and I, I thought that book was just so beautiful and I couldn't take it. And so I think reading that, and I was also reading a lot of Ann Carson and Brian Evanson, you know, all of those people are very concerned with the line where I think Katya was really concerned with, you know, stru the structure of the fragments. Um, so she gave me a lot of permission to just allow this to be like a mosaic style book. Uh, and then I just, I think I probably revised it like seven times before it actually went to print in, you know, three or four months. When were you doing it? Oh you're God, nice and weekends. I was up until 2 a.m. I was, I seriously, I, I didn't sleep. I didn't do anything but, you know, hem and haw over the lines because, I don't know if it feels this way for you, but like the minute you know that it's going to come out, it's like, I have to make this the best thing it could possibly be. Yeah, of course. You know? So, um, and during that is when the facts actually started to come in. I started to add in like those lists of facts because whenever I don't want to write, I start watching planet earth or blue planet. I just like to hide his with, voice. Yeah. You know, it's so soothing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love those. I try to fall asleep to those sometimes. Yeah. They're really nice. Um, but yeah, so I just went into a complete manic episode. I mean, it did get to the point where even $2 radio was like, you gotta, you gotta stop, tap the brakes. You're going wild. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it's good. You can, you can stop. And how does it feel now that it's out there? Uh, you know, I feel better. 
I think I lost my mind for about like the three months before it was coming out. I, th- I got really scared about how intimate it feels and how exposed I feel by it, you know. Um, but now I feel okay, yeah. mostly because the reception has been so good. And I think the coverage I've gotten from the blurbs, like when I say coverage, I mean cover. Uh, I think to put something this weird into the world, you need to have a lot of allies. And it's very funny because I was on when I was on Bookworm yesterday, I was talking about this with Michael Silverblatt. He was talking about Doris Lessing putting her first book out and how you know male critics really roasted her. And then he read the book and he was like, this is fucking brilliant and like you shouldn't be going through this you know and so i think there is something where the book feels like a risk it feels like unlike other books that are out right now and so i'm hopeful that it means we can all be more experimental while still being like personal do you feel like the vulnerability i mean it's always a vulnerable situation to be putting any book out into the world whatever the contents happen to be Mm -hmm. but you talk about how exposed you feel like has the reception to the book focused on the personal, like have people come up to you and been like, Oh my God, I didn't know. Well, or do, like, do people see it in the way that you worried they might? Um, you know, I think the reception, I think people are being really kind not to ask too many insanely personal questions. Uh, when I first was on book tour for tongue party, I got a lot of like, you know, Q and a questions that were like, why do you hate your dad? <laughs> and I'm like, what is this? like fiction. I actually don't hate my dad. Um, this has so far has been good. I, I feel lucky for that, but I also think it might be because the book is such a blur, you know, it's like I'm in there, but I'm not, I don't, I don't know how to describe it other than that. Yeah. You're hidden. Yeah. Kind of obscured. Yeah. Obscured. So yeah. it's not like you, you mean, and you don't have to tell people. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, then they don't know why I'm, why I'm so tied to it, you know? And I wonder if it's like this for other writers, if I had written something that was, more fabricated and removed from me. I keep thinking now, I'm like, I'm just going to go write a traditional romance novel. <laughs> I have that thought too, but like <laughs> the truth is that I don't want books. I don't know. There's no rules. If somebody can really execute and I read it and it sticks, great. But like, I really like when I feel like there's blood on the page and it's like, okay, this is the person, yeah. you know, there's something urgent that they have to say and they, uh, there's a fearlessness in there, yeah. you know, a willingness to sort of like, um, share. I feel like it's kind of in a blender, like fiction, memoir and nonfiction really. Um, because if you look at any one page, it could be any of those things, you know, cause the facts are real, you know, we went through like a lengthy fact process, you know, and fact checking and they were like, you got to cite your sources. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm citing sources in a fictional book. You know what I mean? <laughs> but mo- they're all real. Yeah. You know, most of them, I think. I'm pretty sure. Uh, but that's cool. Yeah. That's cool that it could be any of those things. Yeah, I think so. I hope so. Is that the kind of book that you like to read? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm just, I've, I've been reading, um, it's not out yet, but Carmen Maria Machado's In the Dream House. I keep hearing good things. <sighs> so cool. It's really cool. Um, I like that because it's fact, it's memoir, it's vignettes, it's art. I mean, it's dealing with so many different things. I just haven't read a book like it before, which is what makes me really excited. And I, I would say too, that's really what I wanted to do with this book. I wanted, I wanted to make something no one had made before because I feel like all those books about my grandmom died and she left me a spaghetti recipe and I make the recipe and I think of my grandmom, all that stuff exists. If you want it there, the bookstore is full of it. Right. You know, right. um, if you want something different, then I probably have something for you. <laughs> you know, now that you mentioned, uh, Carmen, I'm thinking to when she was here and she was telling me about her writer retreat story, 
which along with yours probably ranks as two of the most memorable <laughs> writer retreat stories that I've ever heard in conversation on the show. Refresh my memory. Which one was hers? I know she had a couple. Well, she was, um, she was talking about the, the rabbit. If I'm remembering right, when she found half of a rabbit. Oh God. Outside yeah, yeah, of her. Yeah, I yeah. think she was in Wyoming or yeah, something. Yeah. I'm, I'm pulling from my no, memory. No, no, no. It sounds right. That, yeah. sounds, that sounds like Carmen. <laughs> not, not quite as like magisterial and inspiring as the Aurora Borealis. But, but still. But still. That's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you are from Philly. Mm-hmm. Like uh, life born and raised? Uh, I'm from an hour outside of Philadelphia. I grew up next to a power plant called the Limerick Power Plant. Um, so Pottstown, Pennsylvania. Uh, not a lot happening in that town, I would say. Maybe. Like a meat quarry? No, no meat quarries. No, no, meat. no. Although I would say maybe if you think about it, like the strangeness of nuclear energy. A lot of my friends' dads worked there. It was, you know, it's, it's sort of like the the way prisons operate, right? They bring a lot of jobs. Um, and so, you know, they would, the dads would go to work at weird hours and, you know, that kind of thing. Are you Italian? Uh, yeah, I'm Italian and a couple other things. And a couple, okay. Yeah, I'm Italian. Kind of a mutt. No, yeah. Um, so Philly, mm-hmm. but outside of Philly. Yeah. And, um, like childhood, interesting, good, bad. Yeah, I think it was pretty okay. I mean, I definitely had, you know, I was always writing. I was always making little books. My dad still has them. Like I would staple pieces of paper together and use crayons and make books. So uh, I never stopped writing. But I mean, I was a bad kid. I was so bad. When I was 16, I was just a, I was a hell ride. And I don't think, I think my parents had almost kind of given up on me at that point because I was just being a total demon. What were you doing? Oh God, everything. (laughs) I remember this, they went to the movies one night and I threw the biggest raging party you could ever imagine. And like, while they were at the movies, yeah, exactly. And they came home and my mom was like, we were gone for two hours. And when I say they came home to just like kids everywhere, I mean, there was a gravity bong in the bathtub. It was just like out of control. <laughs> it, it truly, when I look back on it, I'm like, Jesus Christ. Um, but the one thing is, you know, the whole time I was doing that, I was still in honors English. I was always reading. I was always writing. I was always making art. Um, and by the time I got to college, I got over the whole kind of drug scene and like drinking. So you and got it out of your system I, early. You know, and I actually looking back on it, when I got to school, all these kids were showing up like, wow, beer? Yeah. And I'm like, you know, by that point, I, was, I wasn't I was sober. Where did you but, go to college? Uh, Penn State University. Oh, yeah. That's not an easy place to be sober. No, no, I wasn't sober. But I was definitely done with, you know, drugs or anything like that. So What kind of, like, did you do, like, hallucinogens? And yeah. Everything. All that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I was 16, 17 living in a town where not much was going on. And, you know, uh, it. I just fell into it. That's what all my friends were doing. And that's what I was doing. And I... You know, it still strikes me how lucky I am that I got out and I got on this path, you know. Did you have any siblings? Yeah, I have a brother. He's uh, six years younger. Oh, younger. He's an accountant. Okay. Yeah. I love him. He's great. Okay. Yeah, but he didn't have, like, I was thinking you had, like, an older sibling who might have, like, exposed you to things. But no, I was were... the bad kid. And it's so funny because my brother went completely the opposite way. It was like, he looked at me being a train wreck and was like, I'm just going to keep my shit straight. <laughs> That's kind of, that kind of thing happened a little bit to my little sister. Yeah. Just because, like, she was really little when I was throwing house parties, and she was exposed to a lot. Uh, my older sister didn't expose me to much at all. Yeah. I'm caught between two girls. Yeah. But, like, my younger sister saw me go wild and then go off to college and, like, grow my hair out and drop acid and be an idiot, you know? And um, she I hopefully learned from that. You would hope. You would hope. Yeah, my brother definitely did. 
I uh, so yeah, I went to Penn State, and that's where I started to do um, a lot of writing for research publications. And I was interviewing scientists at Penn State about their projects and what they were working on. Uh, and then I was also working backstage in a music venue, so I was meeting all these crazy musicians, like, like who? Oh, Prince. <laughs> you met him? Well, I mean, the meeting is hard because you know he laid eyes on me. And, you know, his his manager introduced me because I was, like, setting up his microphone or something. I was just, like, you know, doing stagehand stuff. Um, and he just kind of looked me in the eyes and then gave me the once over and nodded. And that was it. That was it. No, there was no conversation was or anything. Warm, was, just, was there a warmth? Yeah, it, was, was, it seemed warm. But to this day, I'm like, was I being dismissed? Was he approving <laughs> of me? I don't know. Um, but, yeah, I was always, like, crazy on music. I was, like, you know, helping Guar set up shows. And, like, yeah, I, my my music days were just really crazy. I followed Tool up the East Coast for, like, three weeks. I was a maniac. I was a true maniac. Um, and then, you know, I just started focusing on the writing. And when I got out of college... Uh, I was starting to become a waitress at Maggiano's because I didn't know if I was going to get a job. And so I was learning how to like pour wine at Maggiano's. And it turned out that I had gotten a job to be a prison reporter in Boston. And I found out in the middle of the training, like they called me and said, you know, we want you to come do this. And, you know, I quit. It was, you know, one of those days where I was like, holy shit. And I, I literally like, put down, you know, the basket of breadsticks I was learning how to serve and said, I'm moving to Boston. I'm going to be a prison reporter. Uh, and I did it by myself. And so for three years, they would send me into jails and prisons and I would interview inmates. Um, and I was really focused on trying to write about recidivism programs, what was working and what wasn't. Um, but that well, was why this, um, was it just the beat that they it gave was just you? the job I got. And, you know, it was, I had always wanted to be like a reporter for Rolling Stone, but it, it was, you know, the internet had popped off and isn't was, that like, isn't that cause like I was kind of the same way. Yeah. At like the long form journalists yeah. of yore where you're like, wow, this would be amazing. And then the internet just obliterated all that. Yeah. It seems like it did. It did. And you know. so I was just happy to have a job that was a, a writing job, but I was 23 and they were having me interview people in solitary confinement. And what was that like? I mean, it, it was terrifying and it was crazy and it, it gave me um, so much empathy. And I think after, I think after about three years of that, I realized, you know, by the numbers, how insanely fucked our prison system is. Uh, and so that's when I came back to, you know, Pennsylvania and I became the editor in chief of a business journal kind of style pub. And then I got my MFA at night. Uh, but Where at? Uh, at Rosemont College, which is a really small school. I had actually gotten into Columbia, but I, could, I couldn't afford to go. You know, I remember my dad sitting me down saying, like, do you you're going to be in debt for the rest of your life if you do this. Uh, and so I, I do always want to talk about the economy of being a writer because it's not easy, but you can still do it without, you know, I think working full time and getting my MFA at night, I, I think I spent $8,000 on my MFA total. The rest of it, I just paid out of pocket as I went. Um, but I never, I never came from like a place where it was going to be feasible for me to go six figures into debt over an education and, and hope to write a book. Well, that's, I'm glad to hear you say that. And, uh, I think, I mean, my heart breaks cause it's like, ah, oh, she should go to Columbia. You got in, you should, they should pay for you to go or there should be money somehow. It makes me frustrated. Um, but I think about this a lot when, uh, I look back on my MFA experience, uh, I was lucky. I was like the lucky bastard who's like, parents were like, we'll put you through graduate school. Right. Um, so I went, Yeah. I didn't think at the time enough about 
like people getting like a poetry MFA yeah. and going like 70, 80, 90, a hundred thousand dollars in debt yep. to learn how to write better poetry, Yeah. which like, look, I, I'm, I do not, um, I do not condemn or like have like really strong negative feelings toward the MFA program. Like people need to go find places to write wherever it is yeah. and community, wherever they can find it. Um, so there's arguments for and against, but the financial situation that you're in or that you're up against, like, you know, some practical thinking about it is totally logical and defensible. Yeah. You know? So it's like, cause like really like you would be, your dad was like looking out for you. Like if you had just said, I'm going to Columbia, like what if you're sitting here hanging with a hundred grand hanging over your head? I, it's so true. And I think so much about, I'm so concerned about how we're teaching people it looks to be a writer. And that's why when I talk about Iceland, it feels complicated for me because I don't come from money, you know? And, and so the amount of money it cost me to go there, I mean, it probably cost three grand total, like just with the flight and the food and all of that. Um, and I was very lucky to do it, but I don't come from that. It's, it's not normal to me to have good things happen or to have the kind of money to be able to do that. The other thing that I would say is for me with the MFA, it was kind of better that I couldn't go somewhere like Columbia because I think I was able to maintain being weird and write kind of outside the MFA. I think I would have probably been trained to write away that I this this comes a little bit more organically than if I had sat in a room and had, you know, some master fiction writer teach me how to write because I didn't study with anyone famous, you know. Well, I, I think it's that, but I also think it is um the people that you're in class with mm -hmm. and that their work, like people, it's like, there's the teacher's influence, but there's also the, the, the student. fellow student influence yeah. and like how people can get, um, there's a lot of like, uh, mimicry and, and some of it's natural. You're going to influence one another, mm -hmm. but I, I get that. Like you're sort of like out on the periphery a little bit. Like, yeah. I didn't even know Rosemont had an MFA program. Well, <laughs> you know, the MFA was really fascinating for me because everyone was sort of writing traditional fiction and I was showing up with these very surreal, weird stories. And so every workshop was sort of terrifying. And it was only when one professor from Temple realized what I was trying to do and he started funneling me really weird work, like, you know, Donald Barthelemy and early Ben Marcus, like The Age of Wire and String. He started to just feed me the contemporary, modern, odd, surreal things that made me realize I, I wasn't by myself. And up until that point, I had felt very much by myself. I had felt super alone because everyone else was writing these sort of pristine, traditional narratives. Um, and I was showing up with stories about dead koalas watching up on a beach, you know, and people, people would just sit in the class and go, is the character on LSD? That's the only way this makes sense. Was the character on LSD? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's, I, I think this whole process of writing, it, it takes a lot to allow yourself to be yourself on the page because, you know, uh, everybody else, I, I, the one, the one downside of the MFA is we create, uh, a sort of, what is it? A, a flat line or like a middle road where we're teaching each other how to write. And the question could be, you know, is that a necessary, it's, it's not a formula. Yeah. It sure no. isn't, you know? I mean, and I think you, I'm like the thing that keeps coming uh, to mind is how good of a teacher you had to give you that kind of bespoke 
um, nudge. Yeah. That's what a teacher should do. Yeah, you would hope. Yeah. You know, instead of being like, hey, do it this way, <laughs> be like, oh, this is what you're naturally expressing. Let's see if, let's see if we can feed you more, help her, you know, help her along. Yeah. Yeah. So I think without him, I probably would have just quit writing. So, uh, the, like, does the body, is it like the body is obviously, um, a huge concern in your book. Mm-hmm. Is it a huge concern in your work in general? Is it something that you feel like is like a, we all have themes, you know, yeah, of that we're going to sort of carry through. Do you feel like that's one of the core themes? I guess so. And it's so funny because other people see it and I don't because I'm, I'm just kind of day-to-day writing things. Uh, but I guess I am sort of obsessed with the visceral um, and also what it can signify for us because it, it can mean so much. It's like you could explore the body for the rest of your life. It does, it does beautiful things and horrible things and it can turn on you or it can make you feel great. Uh, so I, I don't, I think I'm endlessly fascinated by it. It's like outer space, the human brain, the deep sea. These are like three things that we know so little about still. And so I think they're really ripe for exploration and for playing and yeah. understanding. Um, and then especially just, I mean, the female body, it, it is weird. It is grotesque. It is partially disgusting, right? Like just think about childbirth. I've seen it, it twice. Is, yeah. It, and would you describe it as both beautiful and horrific? Yeah. No, it's bizarre. <laughs> you know? And we, we had five miscarriages. Oh, Jesus. So like oh, I've been so through sorry. that. Yeah. I've been through that. My son was born. He's got disabled. He's disabled. Yeah. So like I'm right there with you on the body. Yeah. Um, and it's crazy too, because especially with miscarriage, no one knows about it. No, yeah, it's like, you, it's like it's a weird grief. You almost don't feel entitled to feel grief about it because it's like, oh, whatever. And you know, frankly, I hear a lot of this or read a lot of this. Like it's weird because, like, when I'm reading Twitter or I'm online, there are always essays about like miscarriage grief, mm-hmm. and like there's somebody who had a miscarriage who writes like a beautiful, wrenching essay about the grief. But then when I, uh, whenever there's debate about um, choice, it's like it's not even a fucking kid until 20 weeks, and you're yeah. just like. I'm like, uh, yeah, I get it. Like I, I do, I sort of get it biologically and like I'm pro-choice, but at the same time, I'm like, man, for me, it felt horrible, horrible. And like increasingly with each one, it gets more and more anxious and like heartbreaking. And, um, for me, it was a real grief. And I think for my wife, especially like her body was the one that was, you know, she was suffering it bodily. Yeah. Um, but then I have friends who have had one and they're just like, yeah, yeah. It didn't work out. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, okay, maybe I'm a pussy. <laughs> yeah, I don't. It, it's funny too because I think one thing that is core of this book, and I think it goes to what you're saying. You know, I can't go on. I'll go on. Right? We're all carrying so much pain, and we don't talk about it. You know, like you don't go to work and say, "Hey guys, I had a miscarriage yesterday. I'm going to be a little bit off my game." I'm kind of the guy who almost would, uh, you know, and then people just get weird. Yeah. I'll tell you this. Like I've noticed that, um, and this is hard, but I think natural, like I wrestle with it, but I feel like I have some understanding and, uh, forgiveness about it. But like, since my son was diagnosed, I've heard from friends of mine less and not more people retreat. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, like that's, I mean, that's it, a killer. And, and look, a there have been many people who have like rallied and been there. But like people that I would not have expected to sort of vanish, vanished. Yeah. And I think that it's not because they're vicious or cold. I think it's just uncomfortable. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. Well, when I had spine surgery, same thing. I went from being the most popular girl in Philadelphia to like three people came to see me in six months. Uh Uh-huh. You know? 
and, and you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. Where'd you go? Where'd y'all go? See, this is the thing though. I don't think it's like, I think people need like, like I tell myself this, like you have to be forgiving. People are not trying to be hurtful. Right. They are self-absorbed <laughs> in the way that I am often self-absorbed. I miss things. Yeah. Like for every per, you know, you think about all these people who didn't come to visit or all these people who haven't bothered to call or check in or, you know, um, like who knows what's going on in their they weird brain. They have lives too. And, and that is really what I'm saying. We're all carrying so much. And I think too, one of the things I'm kind of wrestling with when we talk about how do you keep having a day-to-day -day life when these like tragedies pop up for you, um, you know, I, I'm without getting on a soapbox, it's almost a requirement of capitalism that we pretend we're okay and that we keep going to work and that we put on the face. And I do think it's not natural. I do think it's natural to grieve when there's a miscarriage or to grieve when there's a diagnosis or to grieve when your body hurts for a very long time and then you have like a major surgery. Yeah, Those are all very heavy things. But one of the constructs of living in capitalism is that we have to keep being part of the wheel. We have to keep going to work. We can't, you know, and so that's kind of crazy. If you think about how big you feel and how much grief you feel and how much it hurts, and then you still have to get up the next day and force yourself to keep going. And it's like, that's good in some ways because it doesn't allow you to just completely spiral out. But in other ways, we're all faking it then. That means everyone I meet is doing the same thing I am. Right. In for the most cases, unless you meet, you know, the people who have been lucky enough to be unscathed by tragedy. Well, they'll get theirs eventually. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, some people don't, you know, some people have great, simple lives and nothing bad happens. Well, to them. but eventually you live long enough. Shit's going to happen. Like you're going to get sick and die. Yeah. You know? So yeah. it's like nobody gets out alive. Right. But I do think, cause I think about this too, cause I can, you know, you can get into self-pity when shit goes sideways right. like in my spine. Oh, yeah, my son. Wow. Oh, my yeah. miscarriages. Like, um, but I've been super, super lucky in a lot of other ways, Same. you know, and there's always a, the light and the dark and the good and the bad and the luck and the bad luck. Um, but, <laughs> um, some people draw much tougher hands than others. Very much so. And I, th I think that's something that we need to really start putting back into the American narrative is that, you know, I'm I'm lucky every day. I've had a lot of physical pain. I've had some like economic stuff and, you know, whatever, but I don't have it half as bad as so many people, you know. And so uh if anything, I hope that a book like this would inspire empathy for others and that when you meet someone, maybe you think, "Hey, they could really be going through some shit and they might not be their best right now, but like it, there could be more happening than I even realize." There almost always is. And even if there's not like, I, I think about, I think about this, um, because it's very easy to, to slip up. Like I had a, a Lyft driver yesterday driving me to a work thing. And I was like tense. Cause I had to be there. I was running late. It was like a remote interview in a studio. I had to go, you know, and like it was starting. Yeah. Uh, and so I was like in kind of a, like, not pushy, but I was just like, you got to take this route. You got to take yeah. this route. I'm yeah. going to guide you. Don't look at your GPS. I know how to get there kind of yeah. thing. And so I was like, go up to this corner and take a left. He goes over the corner and goes straight. And I was like, dude, I was like, turn around. You know, I was like, whoa, 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 turn around. You got to go left. You know? And he, I think he was like, he spoke semi-English. Yeah. 
And so then he comes back, you know, he turns around and then goes left at the intersection when he should have gone right. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And I was like, dude, you know, I finally was like, you know, we, we straightened out, we started going the right way. And then I was just like, I'm sorry. And he was like, it's okay. Yeah. But I just caught myself and I was like, you know what? It's, it's early in the morning. This guy's driving a lift. Yeah. God knows how you, maybe he's been on since 3 a.m. Yeah. Was, or he just started and he's working two jobs and he's yeah. fucking tired. Like, you don't know. Yeah. Could we just all be nicer to each other? I mean, the, especially I see it in like, um, in San Francisco, uh, you know, what you have there is a lot of people with a lot of money juxtaposed against a lot of people with nothing or gig work. And like the rudeness and the unfeelingness is just abominable, you know, it's just terrible. Uh, and so I do hope that we could all just like maybe chill the fuck out and be nicer to each other, but, but also make, there also has to be some structural, yeah, oh, yeah. like major structural economic and spiritual shifts. Well, it's unsustainable, the inequality and the, um, isolation and the, um, environmental yeah. destruction. It's unsustainable. I talk about this all the time. It's crazy that before they released Splenda, they had to test it for 10 years. But the internet, they were just like, go. And now it's like we're working on a pill to cure loneliness because we found the part of the brain that where loneliness comes from. And it's like, whoa, wait, maybe we just should stop creating apps that remove the the need no, for us to talk to pill. each other. No, but I'm saying like we we are creating a society where a certain level of economic class will be able to exist without interacting with their surroundings or with other people. I mean, I see it in the condos in San Francisco. Most of the ones that, you know, the tech kids live in are like laundry on site, bar on site, restaurant on site, gym on site. And then like happy hours every night so they can meet each other. What city are you living in then? Everything you need is right there. You never have to leave. How are you engaging with your community? How are you building with other people? How are you meeting anyone who doesn't look exactly like you? Or work exactly like you. You're not. You know? And so that's something that, you know, watching it, especially living in San Francisco, watching that happen, it makes me very it makes me a little scared for the future because um and this is in, in sharp contrast to New York. The train in San Francisco is dead silent. Everyone has headphones on. No one looks at each other. There's just no conversation at all. And that has been that way for the entire year I've been there. Really? Yeah. Whereas in New York, it's more conversation. There's something going on. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, and I'll say it's there's different like a, on... There's like a drum line. Yeah. Or... <laughs> it's different on... I'm talking about Caltrain specifically, which is the train that takes you to Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, BART is a little bit different. BART, you know, anything goes. Yeah. Um, but it does make me think a lot about how we have really removed the need to interact with each other at all. And it's, it's, it's kind of a downer. It's super, super uh, downer. I think about this. I feel fairly isolated socially um, in a way that I think is totally common. Uh, like, I mean, I have a family life and I'm always around people unless like my wife takes the kids away for the weekend, in which case I'm just like, this is fucking great. I'm yeah, just going to yeah. sleep and be quiet, you yeah. know? Um, so it's not that I don't have interaction with other humans. They just happen to be my family, right. but like buddies, middle-aged men, most middle-aged men I know don't do much socially. Right. The women, the moms do get together to their credit and they do provide social support in a way that I envy. Yeah. It comes more naturally to women. Yeah. I think it too, it's like, uh, 
I've noticed this with female friends and, you know, I would say even in like in support of this book, it's like women rally around each other because it's safer because the odds that a woman is going to like harass you or do something to make you feel terrible is much lower. And so it's like you have to keep those friendships because it makes you feel more sane. It makes you feel like you do have a place that you can go where like someone's not going to hurt you. Um, which, you know, I, it, that's what you hope for anyway, you know? Yeah. yeah. Good friends. I, friendships are important. I wish I was, I need to, I'm always thinking like, I gotta be better. I gotta, I gotta be better about like cultivating and maintaining and strengthening and just like being a good friend. I've been on book tour with Tommy Pico, who's a poet that I really love. And he was talking about, uh, how he made a pact with himself and he, you know, he picked a couple friends where he was like, we can no longer break plans, right? Because it's so easy now with the phone to feel like you're in touch with everyone, but you're in touch with no one. Right. And like the downside of technology is the human brain needs to see other humans and be acknowledged. Like in the morning to have someone look at you and say, good morning is a reaffirmation that you exist. And when we lose that, something starts to kind of unravel and get a little gooey, you know? And so I think it is about kind of holding each other accountable for not just being a text friend, you know, and saying like, hey, no, I actually, I need this time. I need, I need to see another person. I don't like flaking. I know. I hate it. Fuck I hate flaking. it. It's gotten so much easier though now. And now you almost expect it. You know, you're like. No, and then like, I, I'm like old school. Like I'm like, um, I'm an on-time guy. Mm-hmm. I'm a, if I tell you I'm going to be somewhere, I'm there. Yeah. Uh, I don't flake. Yeah. And then people flake and I'm like, I'll get, I'll get pissed. I'll be like, dude, You're we flaking. don't. And then it's like, dude, why are you pissed about someone flaking? Yeah. And I'm like, no. They get mad at you for getting you, mad at them. And suddenly... like, no, but it's like, it's like uncool to not be cool with flaking. And I'm like, I don't think this is How a this healthy works. evolution. Yeah. This shouldn't work like this. No, this is a de-evolution. I think that I have this right. You should, there's integrity in, um, being on time for people. There's integrity in keeping your word. Like and these are simple conver- things. And also the, the importance of having a face-to-face conversation. Like I wonder now how many fewer words we're speaking per day than, you know, our ancestors were or my parents, you know, because you, I can go for days without speaking now because I had that just, yeah, I had the same thought the other day. I was like, wow, I didn't, I haven't talked to anybody since Friday. That's insane. And it was like Sunday night. Yeah. You know, not that long, but still, but no, that's pretty hefty. Um, and so there's a way in which I think we're like allowing technology to let us disappear that I don't know if, you know, I'm kind of working on a book around this now, but, um, I'm kind of fascinated by it, especially just after everything I've seen in San Francisco. I don't, if, if, if we're to believe San Francisco is the future, which is maybe true, um, it's, it's not giving me a lot of hope. Well, it's such a beautiful place and I have so much romance um, when I think of it, like I have, there's so much romance to San Francisco, like it's history. I love the whole 60s San Francisco thing as an idea. Yeah. Um, but it is also to me like the most extreme and concentrated example of how like the 60s boomer generation, um, and I guess, but it's also younger generation. I mean, like a lot of this money and capital is being driven by non-boomers. Right. But it just feels like it went from being sort of this great, groovy, affordable polyglot of a city to being something that's been just corrupted by it, wealth. I call it a fault line. I mean, I, I'm paying, and this is this has been really hard coming from Philadelphia and not coming from money. The amount of rent I'm paying breaks my heart every month. But beyond that, 
it's the amount of suffering. It's that every day I leave my house and someone is sleeping on the sidewalk and bleeding. Uh, me too. And, and me I, too. I can't. And, it, and it's like people are like, oh, it's bad in other cities. There is nothing as bad as what I have seen in San Francisco. It is on every block. It is on every street. It does not have, you know, it's not contained in any way. And it shouldn't be. Honestly, should it be? Probably not. Because in reality, like, this is a problem that we're not fixing. And fuck us for not fixing it. Like, I'm moving to Austin in, like, 20 days because I, this is the least ethical I've ever felt living anywhere. To every day wake up and go to my dumb job in Silicon Valley and the homelessness extends all the way down to Silicon Valley. Yeah. There's homeless people on the edge of the Google campus where my office is located. My God. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and I'll, and I'm walking around going, does everyone in this city have Stockholm syndrome? Because they're all telling me like, it's not that bad. Well, it's I, not that expensive. It's not that big of a problem. I'm like, I go to the, I, you know, I go to the gym in the morning and I have to walk by someone who's literally vomiting blood out of their mouth. And I, and I can't, I can't understand how all of us are just letting it happen. Right. And it's, but then it's also like, cause I'm the same way. I ride my bike uh, around. I ride my bike a lot. Um, so I think like maybe when you're not in a car, if you're on foot or you're on a bike, you, you're more in touch. Like if you're encased in your Tesla, yeah, you know, you're it's like, harder to it's see. like, I can't hear anything in this soundproof electronic vehicle Bingo. that goes zero to Bingo. 70 in two seconds. Like, yeah. Um, but I just will have like more human to human interaction. I'll be at a red light and I'll just be like looking over and you know, the homeless woman pushing her cart will be like, I'm going to see Jesus. And she's walking to the, to the church. And then I'll see a guy pooping. I'll see, uh, you know, somebody just filthy sleeping and they're completely covered by a blanket. And I'm like, are they dead? And this is like every day. And I think people who don't live in major cities, um, maybe especially in like California because of the nice weather. Yeah. I think a lot of people come here just cause it's, it's like a little bit less painful to right. be homeless right. or because the cost of living is so high. There's more homeless people. I, I was going to say, I mean, it was, it was really hard. I was watching a little bit of a video for a program in San Francisco that's attempting to help the homeless. And one of the men was like, the, the biggest joke here is all of you are two paychecks away from being me. And I was you. And all it took was, you know, one or two things to go wrong. And this is what my life turned into. And, you know, I I don't know what the answer is. I, but I, I know that when I look at, I did some work with a homeless shelter in Philadelphia and it called the Bethesda Project. And we volunteered there for a little bit. And that program, I think, is housing, you know, thousands of people who otherwise would be on the street. And, you know, for San Francisco, where they're not allowing kind of new construction in certain areas, they're not they're not creating a solution to this problem. And, you know, I can't just blame the city, obviously, but if the taxes are this high and you're not helping your people at all, then something's wrong. Something's not adding up. If, the, if you're the richest and most expensive city in America and you can't figure out how to help these people then either that money's going somewhere it shouldn't or your priorities are in the wrong place because it is truly devastating and it is and growing yeah i heard the other day on npr i want to say the homeless population in la went up by 10 percent last year yeah and in oakland it went up i want to say something like 22. it's crazy i i had someone you know who was sharing some research with me and they said you know homelessness in san francisco went down by 13 percent and it turned out the the study that they were citing had decided to count tents as homes. 
And I was like, how nice for you to fudge these numbers by pretending that a tent is a house so that you can tell yourself this problem isn't getting worse. It's insane. Well, plus like, you know, because people like, I want to say the ACLU argued a case in Los Angeles that made it legal for people who are homeless to put up a tent on any sidewalk to camp anywhere that's not a residential neighborhood, Mm -hmm. but it's like city, you know, commercial districts, whatever, as long as they, they can put a tent up after like sundown and they have to be up by sunrise. But of course, who's going to police that? Yeah. Um, but like, it just feels unsustainable. Like we, cause you know, you're like, Oh my God, like how can we have tent cities everywhere? And like, I'm taking my daughter to her friend's house and uh, you know, it's just, it just feels like wrong. It's wrong, wrong. and a, ma- a massive problem and it's going to require leadership and sacrifice. Well, also some kind of innovative thinking. It's like, why are we so excited to put innovation into apps rather than finding new ways to solve humanitarian issues? Right. That's, that's what kills me is we've decided to dedicate all let's, of let's our, let's go to Mars, you know? Yeah. Why don't we do that? <laughs> you know, instead, why don't we figure out how to make a car that drives itself instead of figuring out how to sustainably house the homeless who I would argue, you know, many are just dealing with mental health issues. You know, there was a ruling, I think in the seventies, and it was probably the one thing I think the ACLU did that I, you know, kind of don't agree with now in retrospect where, you know, you can't be kept in a mental institution if you're being treated and the medication is working. And you can see it when the minute this happened, there's a direct spike in the prison population and the homeless population because the offshoot of, of taking you know schizophrenia medication is that it convinces you that you're doing okay. And then you kind of have these people who are put back out into the world without a support system or the ability to buy the drugs. And so you know the, the homelessness in San Francisco looks quite different from any other homelessness that I've seen because I, to me it's more frequently mental health issues than it is alcoholism um, and, and even drug abuse. Yeah, uh, it, it far more feels like schi- I'm seeing schizophrenia, uh, and so that makes me even more angry that we're not doing something about it. Uh, well, I'm right there with you. You're a very empathetic person. <laughs> Turns out, yeah, right. Yeah. It's so funny. Uh, one of my favorite facts is that an octopus has three hearts, and I remember writing a story about you know a woman that had three hearts and like how you'd be so empathetic you wouldn't even be able to walk down the street. You know, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, you know that it puts you to the test. If you're actually looking and actually seeing people, yeah, it is weird how you can desensitize. I think it's just like survival mechanism, but it's not the answer. Like we have to look and we have to like, co- collectively deal yeah. with the reality. And it's also like you paid $4 million for your house in pack Heights or whatever it is. Like why you want to live like this? Like, come on. It, like it's, it's past looking. It's more about doing. And I think that's one thing that I hope is, the next phase of America, because I think right now we're in a very comfortable place of like, I protest on Saturdays and then I go to brunch. I march at night and I don't care what happens to the homeless. Like we need to really start thinking about how we can change things in a tangible way, because it's all well and good that we're having a conversation right now, but I'm very hungry for action. I want somebody to do something. How many op-eds are we going to write? before a lot you know yeah and we hear ourselves having this conversation but we're still having it we've been having it and 
Um, it's the same thing. I feel like, you know, I felt this way after the Women's March. Like, I went to D.C. and I was so amped. And it's like they still defunded Planned Parenthood the very next day. And so I look at France and I look at Puerto Rico and I look at, you know, what's happening in Hawaii. And you see these other, you know, cultural movements where people are not afraid to say, I'm not going to work until you do the right thing. I'm not going to work until this changes. And you see them halting the wheels of capitalism, like laying down on the train so that nobody works. Um, and I, I, there's something about me that really envies that because I just, I don't really see the same thing here. It's because we're too comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And people are disengaged. I feel like I get frustrated. I've had conversations about this. Like I'm pretty, I follow politics. I'm pretty engaged mm -hmm. and like, you know, I don't know fixated is the word, but like paying attention mm -hmm. and feeling good about paying attention, feeling like that's justifiable. Right. We need people paying attention, but like, I feel like there's too much like detachment. And like, the, again, I feel like this sense of like, well, that's uncool. I'm not going to talk about that or tweet about that or Facebook about that. I don't want to deal with it or, yeah. And I'm like, guys, like we gotta pay, like, especially smart, like bookish mm -hmm. people with good expressive abilities. Like we need people communicating. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so hard because the, I was reading some research about how social media is good for organizing. But it's bad because it also makes us feel like we're doing something when we're not. Right. It's easy to go bitch on Facebook. It's harder to say, I'm not going to go to work t until everyone has housing. Or I'm not going to go to work until we impeach somebody that probably shouldn't be in office. That I, kind think, of I think people would do it. I think there's just not that collective sense. You don't want to be the only jackass who's like... Absolutely. I just got fired. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But it's really hard because if you even look when people say, like, we're going to have a walkout or whatever, most of those things are happening in very small chunks at schools. You know, you see teachers doing that. Um, and so I don't know what it's going to take. I, I had interviewed when I was very young. I interviewed Noam Chomsky, and I was asking him about the, the way in which protest has changed. Um, and I think it's very different what, what happened for Vietnam. And I don't, I don't feel that our protests today are the same at all. I think we've we've really put them in a convenience bucket. When is it convenient for me to show up is without there a losing protest my app? job? Is there an app for that? Can we just get Yeah, a, can we get an app for how to stand up against all this bullshit? I want to have a car that protests for me. You know, it's a good question though because uh it does feel but then but then you look at Puerto Rico and you see it can work. It can and work. And pretty quickly. Yeah. That, you know, I mean, not quick. And Hong Kong, too. Yeah. Not, I mean, nothing's quick, but I mean, that's that was a couple weeks long. It's about volume and consistency. Yeah. If enough people show up and don't leave, like, then the government will respond because they will be terrified yeah. of the people. And yeah. that's the way it should work, right? Yeah, you would The hope. government should be afraid of the people, <laughs> not the people afraid of the government. Not vice versa. Yeah. Well, but, uh, you know, I, I hope that more of us find each other and that we, you know, find ways to be more actionable and, you know, less, even though I'm a writer, less chatty about it and more ass in the street kind of thing. Cool. Well, uh, I've loved talking to you. Hey, you too. Uh, congratulations really on your book. Hey, thanks. And good luck on, what are you working on now? Oh, uh, novel and a short story collection. Novel first. Um, but it's more, it's kind of a Joan Didion in Silicon Valley. It's it's dead death. koalas washing up. On. <laughs> there is surrealism in it. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's definitely going to be a, I hope a good one. I hope a banger. All right. <laughs> well, good talking to you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, guys, there you go. That's Sarah Rose Etter. 
and her debut novel is called The Book of X. It is available from $2 Radio. Sarah Rose Etter, The Book of X. Go get your copy right now. You can find Sarah Rose Etter online at sarahroseetter.com. She's on Facebook. She's on Instagram. You can follow her on Twitter at Sarah Rose Etter. Track her down. Get her novel. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music, as always. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Tell me what you think. Tell me a story. Share your vision. Don't forget that the Other People podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. It's available where you get your apps. Go get the app. It's free. Next week on the program, Juliet Escoria, author of Juliet the Maniac. Been waiting for this one. Get excited. It's coming. Oh, my God. (laughs) 